and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Today on the AAMFT podcast, we're talking about couples therapy where one or even both partners has an alcohol problem. Couples in which a partner abuses alcohol are often very unhappy. In fact, these partners are often more unhappy than couples who don't have problems with alcohol, but who seek help for marital problems. As drinking gets worse, it starts to take more and more time away from the couple taking its toll by creating an emotional distance between the partners that's sometimes very difficult to overcome. These couples also report that they fight and argue a great deal, which sometimes can become violent, especially when fueled by alcohol. It's often the fighting itself that can create an environment or situation in which the partner with the drinking uses alcohol to reduce his or her stress. When the alcohol use eventually becomes one of the main reasons for fighting or arguing, what we see happen is a vicious cycle in which alcohol causes conflict. The conflict leads to more alcohol use as a way of reducing tension. There's conflict about the alcohol, escalates, more drinking occurs, and so on. Couples in which a partner abuses alcohol have a very difficult time getting out of this downward spiral. Fortunately, There are proven ways to help, specifically behavioral couples, therapy. Who better to talk to that today than a pioneer in this area? Barbara McCready, distinguished professor emeritus at the University of New Mexico. As a scientist practitioner, the overall goal of Barbara's career has been to conduct research, to test innovative treatments and treatment delivery systems for persons affected by substance use disorder to better understand the mechanisms by which this treatment works. As a practitioner, another goal of Barbara's is to improve clinical practice through use of empirically supported assessment and treatment approaches. We will be back after our talk with Barbara. Eli, back with you on the AAMFT podcast. So happy to be joined by Barbara McCready. Today, we're talking about Couples therapy, when one or possibly both members have issues with alcohol. The first question always, Barbara, if you've listened to the show before, we'd like to know about our experts' therapeutic origin story, so to speak. So how did you get interested in working with couples and specifically couples with addiction? Okay, well, the story sort of goes back to my undergraduate years when I was a biology major. But I took a couple of psych classes, and one of them was an abnormal class at Purdue. The professor talked about community psychology, and I was really inspired by that. I finished my degree in biology and then 
took some post-bac courses, and then went into psychology. This was, this goes way back. This was around the end of the Vietnam War, and my husband was looking for a draft deferred job, which he got in Rhode Island. So I moved to Rhode Island and looked for a graduate program and was accepted at the University of Rhode Island, which was not a community psych program, but we had a lot of courses that were couples and family oriented. So that was as close as I could get. And I took those courses with a great deal of enthusiasm, did a practicum at Butler Hospital in Providence, Rhode Island, and worked with a psychiatrist there, then went off to internship. And he got a grant to, from the state of Rhode Island to do pilot tests, a program to jointly admit persons with alcohol use disorder and their spouses to the hospital to test to see if we could do really intensive treatment. And he called me and said, I have this grant and I don't, I'm not much of a researcher and I'm wondering if you'd like to be the project coordinator. So and I knew I was going to need a job, so I took it and started working with couples with alcohol use disorder and was just captured at that point for several different reasons. One is I already had a, a community systems orientation to thinking about individual psychopathology. And I also realized alcohol use disorders are devastating to people. They just destroy their, have the potential to destroy their lives, and not just the individual, but their families, their, you know, the effects, their work setting, obviously other impacts in the community. And at that point, not too many psychologists were that interested in alcohol use disorder. And I thought I can work with people who have serious problems where what I could do could make a really significant difference. So we, we did that study. I joined the faculty at Brown, and the rest is history. You are both a scholar, a practitioner, and I think before we get into the really nuts and bolts of clinically working with couples like this, let's talk about the major research findings that our listeners frontline couple and family therapists should know about specifically behavioral couples therapy for alcohol. Okay. I'll start at the beginning. That the first study, we compared the joint admission program to just outpatient therapy with couples. And we did couples therapy in, the, in groups. And we also did individual, provided individual therapy to both the patient and the identified partner. And we found, and then we had another control group, but we found that the both of the couples involved conditions did just fine. Individual therapy did not do quite as well, but there really wasn't any added benefit for jointly admitting people, which was good because that's extremely expensive and disruptive to people's lives. So from there, there were other people, of course, doing couple therapy research in the alcohol field at that time, and there's pretty good evidence that couple therapy was more efficacious than individual, but we didn't know much about the elements of that therapy. So the next study we did compared into, oh, all three treatment conditions involved both partners. One condition, though, was just a straight, basically, cognitive behavioral therapy for alcohol use disorder with the partner present, but just there getting information. The second condition involved interventions to help the partner know how to support the person in their change. And then the third intervention, third condition included couple therapy as well. And we found a very clear preference for this full treatment that involved 
individual CBT for the patient, interventions to help the spouse know how to cope better with alcohol and support the person in their change, and couple therapy. Very clearly better outcomes with that condition, both in terms of the drinking and in terms of relationship stability. We then went, have gone on to do other studies looking at other kinds of enhancements, such as including more relapse prevention elements or including A and Alanine involvement. Didn't find, really didn't find an added benefit for AA and Alanine with the couples therapy. We then went on to look at the treatments with women because there was virtually no research on women. Actually, in general, there wasn't a lot of research on women. And again, we found that this three-part couple therapy did really well for women. In fact, one of our most surprising findings was women who had other Axis one disorders, anxiety and depression, did better with the couple therapy than individual therapy. We were pretty surprised by that because we thought they would need the individual attention more. But as we thought about it, we think that what happened was we, the couples were learning basically how to work as a unit to deal with problems in their lives. And they, we, our guess, we didn't have data to support this, our guess, though, is that they were able to use those skills in dealing with other emotional problems as well. We then went on to try to see if we could enhance the therapy for women with other with a greater focus on women's specific issues. And most recently, we did, we've completed a study of what we've called brief family-involved treatment, or BFIT. And the goal of that treatment was to try to really pare down the behavioral couple therapy to something that could be used in conjunction with other treatments. So we made it a three-session treatment, expanded it so it could involve any family member, not just an intimate partner, and could be dropped in to an ongoing intensive outpatient or inpatient treatment program at any point when it, was in, when it would, would sit with a greater treatment program. Again, we found pretty positive findings in terms of drinking. We didn't find much impact in terms of family or relationship functioning. But again, it was a very brief treatment, and we tested in an inpatient setting, and it was really hard to get the treatment going in that particular setting. So that's a really brief, hopefully a brief overview of some of our major findings. We have a lot of listeners to the show when they're doing an opening assessment with couples, obviously asking about things that get in the way of the couple functioning, the communication, the intimacy. Alcohol sometimes comes up, and even if one or both members of the couple does not meet for an alcohol use disorder, certainly alcohol is a problem in the relationship. So generally, when you are assessing a couple and they're not coming in specifically for alcohol issues, talk to us about the best ways to assess a couple for their role of alcohol in the relationship. Partly it depends on what the couple's coming in for. But for me, a comprehensive assessment at the beginning of treatment is almost, in, I guess in more medical terms, a review of systems. And I like to just say to people, I'm going to ask you a lot of questions about different areas in your life to get to know you and to understand where the problems you're coming in for fit in with the rest of your life. So I wouldn't, obviously, I want to know about their origin story. I want to know something about the problems that they're presenting with, how they got to treatment. And the, the sort of review of systems is understanding their family situation, their occupational situation, 
other kinds of psychological issues, economic challenges, things like housing and work and things like that, and substance use. And so when, for me, putting that in the con- you know, context of saying, I'm really trying to get to understand you in general, broadly, it's, it elicits a lot less defensiveness than just saying, all right, tell me about your drinking or your drug use. And the easy screening questions, certainly for alcohol and, well, other substance use disorders as well, but there are a few really easy screening questions that you can use as questionnaires. And I like to have people fill some things out anyway, but just asking about quantity and frequency of drinking, if they have any concerns, where drinking fits in in their relationship. And that that usually gives me a good understanding of how much the alcohol is a contributing factor. And a lot of a lot of people will say he goes out and or she goes out and drinks with friends and I don't like that or I worry or I worry about them driving home. Sometimes I feel like more child care responsibilities fall on me than is really quite fair. Sometimes we seems like we always have our arguments when we've been drinking. I'm consulting on a study in at Medical University of South Carolina with Julianne Flanagan. And it's a really lovely study that they're using the alcohol behavioral couple therapy and testing oxytocin to see if it impacts the, the therapy sessions. But we've had more than one couple that will sit in the evening, drink together, and then they get into arguments. Or they, they sit and they drink and they think it's a time to connect with each other. And then they get depressed sometimes because they're talking about difficult issues. Drinking itself isn't bad. It's really how it fits into their lives and how it impacts them. And that's what I'm looking for in an initial assessment. Now, a lot of times you don't find that out in the initial assessment. But as a few, you go get a few sessions into treatment and they're having trouble with following through on assignments or there still is a lot of arguing going on. And then you have the opportunity to find out like what's going on, what's impacting you, what's preventing you from getting things done in the treatment that we've been talking about you doing. So sometimes you find out about alcohol then. I should mention, and this is a plug for something I get no money for, Linda Roberts and I, a good number of years ago, wrote a very short book for NIAAA, the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, about integrating alcohol issues into couple therapy. And I still really like it. It's a great resource. And I think it was distributed to AMFT members at one point, 15 years ago or something, but it's still a resource that you can find on the NIAAA website. I appreciate you sharing that resource as sort of listeners like practical ways to adapt what they're doing with a population like this. There's a lot of misinformation, I think, of working with one or both partners when there is an alcohol use disorder. So let's talk about the biggest myths that exist about working with the population? Well, myth number one comes from the traditional recovery community perspective, which is that you shouldn't, that the myth says you shouldn't try to deal with relationship issues until someone's been in recovery for about a year. And that's just not supported by data. And I understand where it came from, the idea that it's hard enough to recover from an alcohol use disorder and dealing with your relationship too is just too much. But our research is really clear that you can get both people involved from the beginning and work effectively. So that's the first myth. The second myth is that it's impossible. 
I work with couples together with alcohol use disorder. And I'd give that about a 10% accuracy. It's not impossible. It's difficult. They are, you've got, because you've got a lot going on. You're trying to help them deal with the alcohol, with the individual who's consuming alcohol. I'm going to stick with alcohol because it's easier to say alcohol and other substance use disorders. But most of what I say applies pretty well to other drugs as well. So you're dealing with three things, really. One is the alcohol. The second is the partner's experiences and feelings and reactions. And at the same time, you're trying to help them build their relationship and learn how to communicate with each other. And that's not easy work. A person who has good skills in marital family therapy and has no knowledge about alcohol use disorders is going to be (laughs) handicapped on the first side. And the person who's got a lot of alcohol experience but not couple or family experience is going to be handicapped on the other side. So that's the second one. And the third one is a general prejudice in our society that people just can't resolve these problems, alcohol or drug problems. And the evidence is really very much to the contrary, that people recover, they live really good lives, and they can go on and be really great contributing members to their communities. And the fourth really has to do with the issue of goals and treatment around the alcohol consumption. We've traditionally focused on abstinence goals, and I lean towards abstinence because I think it's clearer. You don't have to guess if you're in trouble or not. You can't get into trouble in your community or with your family if you're not drinking at all. But more and more, we're learning that people, many people resolve their problems when they're less severe by reducing their drinking and mod, lighter, moderate drinking range and that they, their quality of life can really improve quite a bit then. That's a trickier one because sometimes spouses don't want that goal. They really want the person to be abstinent. And so there's a lot of challenge in the treatment around dealing with those kind of different goals that are aims at the beginning, certainly at the beginning of the treatment. So that's a little bit difficult. And moderate drinking is just more difficult if you've had a significant problem because you always have to think about how much am I drinking? How am I drinking it? Am I, am I sticking with my goals? So it's a little bit tougher one, but it's certainly attainable. And a lot of people with less severe problems will, will lean towards a moderate drinking goal rather than an abstinence goal. So most of our listeners will understand behavioral couples therapy. And in fact, if you were trained in the field, 30, 40 years ago, that was the gold standard and everything that was around was behavioral couples therapy. So it makes sense that working with couples where one or both partners have an alcohol issue would apply. We know things like behavior exchange techniques, communication, problem solving techniques, the pillars of working with couples. So what additional, if I'm just getting into this for the first time, what additional components of traditional behavioral couples therapy would you build into a couple dealing with alcohol issues? I'm not sure I'd say additional, but I would say creative applications. One of the things that that couples have a, well, partners have a great deal of difficulty with is knowing how to talk about alcohol with their spouse and their, or with their partner. They often have a history of nagging or being angry I'm going to say low levels of intimate partner violence because I won't see couples together if there's intensive intimate partner violence. So they've had a lot of 
poor coping skills, and they also have often have a lot of anxiety about what do I say if it's a female partner, my male partner is going to be going to a work function or going out with his brother and his buddies, and I don't even know how to talk about that. So there's this very, it's still communication training or teaching, but it's very, the content is very, it's pretty specific to learn how to use things like I feel statements in the context of drinking. I feel concerned or worried because in the past when you've gone out with your brother and your buddies, it's always been a really bad night and I want you to know I'm worried about it. And then teaching, a, helping the identified patient learn how to respond to that and feel have respond less defensively to that. So that's one area where it's the content of the communication rather than, it's not like a brandy new communication skill that we've created, but there, it's a content area. Also, problem solving early in treatment is, I like to have it really be pretty focused around alcohol and how to cope with drinking-related situations. So these are very much content kinds of things that are specific to this treatment. What are we going to do about having alcohol in the house? Should we? Do we want to have alcohol in the house? If we do, what are we going to do with it? And it's, those are the, some of the most fascinating conversations because different couples come up with completely different strategies. I've had couples say, okay, we're going to keep alcohol available when we have guests, but we're going to lock it up. Or the identified patient says, well, I only drink wine, so if we just have beer in the house, I don't care. That's fine. Or people who say, we just got to get it out of the house completely. But you're building a, a joint approach to dealing with problems in their lives through this kind of problem solving. Another very specific situation, and I guess this is communication and problem solving, revolves around being in situations where alcohol is present. And we like to help drinkers learn how to refuse drinks, which is a skill in, unto itself. But again, partners often are just, they have no idea what to do. Should they, should we just not go to these events? Should the partner jump in and make decisions for the identified patient? So again, it's a problem-solving opportunity. And I've had couples come up with vastly different solutions. One point in my career, I was seeing two couples who both had the the same first names, and I won't say what their names were, but let's just say it was Jack and Jill. And Jack and Jill number one said, I would like you to, Jill said, they, both of the women were the identified patients, Jill said to, to Jack, I would like you to order a club soda for me whenever we go out, or if we're at a party, get me a club soda. And Jack was like, that's fine. And then the second Jill said, this has to be my decision, and I have to be in control of my own recovery. So I don't want you to order anything for me. I want to take that responsibility myself. And then a third couple, completely different couple, different in point in my career. And this was a identified patient who was aiming for a non-abstinence goal. And so they had this big discussion about what do we do? They went to a lot of parties. And what do I, what do we do? How do we communicate to each other about the man's drinking? So they came up with this whole thing that, that at dinners, if he was feeling too much pressure and he maybe wanted to leave early, he would, I don't know, cough into his napkin, and that would give her an opportunity to be able to say, oh, are you feeling okay? Do, you know, maybe should we be going home early? And so they had this whole strategy worked out. 
so as I said, these are all, you can use regular behavioral couple therapy skills, but in the context of a lot of content areas that are pretty unique to treating couples. I will say we've also integrated more integrative couple therapy techniques into our treatment with much more discussion, understanding of acceptance, and that kind of balance between behavior change and acceptance, because there's certainly things in relationships that are just not going to change, and couples have to figure out what they want to do. And then I'll say one more thing. You got me on a topic that I'm very interested in. The, in this group, in the couples we've been seeing in the South Carolina project and Dr. Flanagan's project, we've had a lot of couples with experiences of infidelity. And the behavioral couple, alcohol behavioral couple therapy is pretty packed already, and it's hard to really deal with infidelity issues within the context of that. But the therapists have found a couple of really good kind of self-guided manuals to help couples deal with histories of infidelity. And we've just been helping the couples find those resources and use them in conjunction with the therapy. And that seemed to, seems to have worked pretty well. Yeah, we see a lot of alcohol-induced infidelity that probably would not have occurred had the person been in more in control of their drinking. So it makes sense how those two would correlate. Now, you mentioned acceptance. So I'm working with a couple right now, two physicians, and there have been no natural consequences, meaning DUI, legal consequence, no health issues, no performance at work. So the female physician wants her husband to drink less. And he's like, no, I'm in control of it. And you just need to accept that I am drinking. Well, that was fine until the husband had one of these natural consequences and it was a, a legal consequence. He was pulled over now and they're following that protocol, but he does not want to modify his behavior. He, he does not want an abstinence plan. He wants her to accept that he is going to continue to drink and he can do it responsibly. So what happens as far as acceptance and tolerance techniques when one partner wants the other partner to accept their uh, modified drinking behavior? That's, that is just the $64,000 question or maybe a million dollar question. There are a bunch of things I can comment on here. One is, it sounds as though he's modified his stance from, I will not change my drinking at all, to, I will make some changes in my drinking. Am I understanding that correctly? Correct. I will limit my drinks to so many. When I'm going out, I will have a taken Uber, have someone else drive. So, but she would like him to stop completely, given that this seriously impacted the relationship and potentially his medical career. So. I think there's no easy answer on this one, but certainly I think there's some discussion about the idea that change is a gradual process. And I like to let kind of see how that plays out for a little bit. So if he's set a new goal, how much is he able to achieve it? I also like to make sure that people know what the NIAAA guidelines are for drinking. And for men, it's no more than 14 drinks in a week and no more than three per occasion. For women, it's no more than seven drinks a week and no more than, typically, no more than one or two per occasion. And so I like to make sure that people at least know and are making an informed decision about whether their goal is higher than that. Now, and again, our South Carolina project, we've got some number of couples where their goals are 
the reduced drinking goals are higher, much higher than what those guidelines are, but they're at least informed about them. And I think I would focus with her and her communication around what her concerns are, what, and obviously it's going from the, I don't want you to drink to the more of the emotional level of what are your fears, what are your anxieties, and see if he can at least respond to those and understand what those are and with good reflective listening to see if he can actually get what she's saying and what she's worrying about. So that's part of it. And I think the other thing is she she has to make some decision about what she's willing to accept. And if she's simply not willing to accept that, then what does that mean? Uh, and I think helping her articulate what would it mean if he continues with that goal and she cannot accept it. Does she have a consequence? Does she have a bottom line? And it's tough, though, because ultimately each of them is responsible for their own behavior. So if he wants to continue to drink, he he can make that decision. If she cannot tolerate it, then she has to make a decision about what she wants to do. And I was just saying that it's an ugly situation. One of the things commonly built into this type of work is a recovery tr- contract that holds both people accountable, not just the drinker. So let's talk about the components of a good recovery contract in behavioral couples therapy. Okay, so the recovery contract has to start with an agreed-upon behavior change. And that's something that we, you want to see happening on a daily basis. So that's, that's the first step. And it sounds like with this particular couple, that might be a tough step to even get to. But at least agreeing on that. The second piece of the recovery contract typically is to do something that implements that agreement on a daily basis. So stick with your couple. If the agreement is that he says, I will drink no more than three drinks, let's just take that as a number. And if I go out with friends, I'm going to take an Uber home. So he makes that verbal commitment to her in the morning. And she says, then the partner's responsibility is to do something that's a positive, supportive statement. So it might be I something as simple as I appreciate that you're sticking to your goal today or you're expressing your goal for the day. And I support you in that because I would like to see us be successful. So that's one example of the recovery contract. People started using recovery contracts around things like taking medication on a daily basis. But you can use it for other kinds of commitments as well. Now, there, there are a lot of nuances. The first is who initiates that, having a decision about exactly when that's going to happen, a commitment to when it's going to happen, and having a discussion about who initiates it. And typically, you want the identified patient to initiate it. And then what happens if the person doesn't initiate it or if the partner just, gosh, isn't available at the time that they've agreed upon to, to have this conversation? So there need to be consequences or at least a plan for how to follow it through. What you don't want is to have it become another thing to argue about. You didn't, you weren't there at 7.30 this morning. And what happens if they don't follow it through needs to be pretty clearly specified. And usually it's, you just don't talk about it until you come back to the next therapy session. What do you think about building in external supports into the recovery contract, i.e., you know, we have our couples therapy, you're going to your meetings, you have a sponsor, 
what other external supports should be built into this type of work? Okay, you're asking kind of two questions there. So within the recovery contract, the recovery contract can be have almost any content. It could be I'm committing to going to an AA meeting every day, or I'm committing to going to a smart recovery meeting every day, or I'm committing to if the person is, say, going to AA, then the maybe the partner is committing to going to an Al-Anon meeting. So it can be something like that. Or it can be I'm if somebody's very involved with AA, I'm going to work on my fourth step today, something like that. So the recovery contracts can cover a lot of different kinds of commitments. It can be if they're if the person's going to therapy that's separate from the couple therapy, I'm committing to going to my therapy session or my 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 group or whatever. So the recovery contract can cover all sorts of different things. The other kinds of external supports are really idiosyncratic. I like to more more when I'm doing individual behavior therapy with someone with an alcohol use disorder. I like to really have them look at their social network. And we we have something in, in one of our books with a nice, is it looks like a big target with concentric circles and have them write down the people that they're closest to and less close to and who's a drinker and who isn't. And have them really look at that and think about who might I want to increase my contact with? Who might I want to decrease my contact with? Or if, wow, everyone in my world is a heavy drinker, how do I expand my network? With couples, helping them do that as a couple is really important because so many couples have a whole social network that's built around and with other couples who drink similarly to them. So helping them reevaluate that and think about how do we want to spend our time when we're socializing? Who do we want to spend it with? And a lot of times couples will shift more towards non-alcohol involved activities and or the people that they know that are less less heavy drinkers or people that really would understand and support the changes that they're trying to make. I think some other scenarios we see is where one partner really wants their partner with the alcohol issue to go to a more intensive option, an intensive outpatient program or residential program. And the other partners, no, 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 let's try this couples therapy first and I'll go to my meetings. When there is a difference of opinion on what type of intervention to use, how as the therapist, can we help a couple navigate that? And one way to think about it is, I always say the one partner says, I don't think this is going to work. And the other partner says, well, this is all I'm willing to do. So if this couple's therapy isn't good enough, then I'm not going to do anything else. So when they're at a, at an odds over the level of intensity of intervention to use. Again, it's a conversation that the therapist has helping them have. And I think to me, that's probably the biggest part of this conjoint approach is to help them learn how to have those conversations, acknowledging, okay, you have really different perspectives about what what should happen next. So helping them express the person, the identified patient who doesn't want to go to anything else or any or more intensive treatment, what are their concerns? How would they know if this, this treatment isn't enough? How would they know that if it is working? And so helping them identify and articulate specific goals and things that you can mark and track on a weekly basis. And again, also for the partner being able to express, what are you concerned about? Why do you feel so strongly about this higher level of care? 
And then again, trying to see if you can help him come to some agreement that says, let's try this for four to six weeks, which is usually what I think usually by, by that time, person's been able, if they're going to make successful changes in their drinking during outpatient couple therapy, they're going to be able to have made them. If after four to six weeks, they're still drinking in the same way, they're still having the same consequences, you want to have something in that agreement that says, we will stop and reevaluate at that point. And then we may take a step, which would be to investigate higher levels of care, alternative treatments, and see, maybe go have a visit or do a call or whatever. People get very much entrenched in their own perspectives or their own, what they think should happen. And as a therapist, what you're trying to do is help them get unstuck, essentially, through conversation and expressing their feelings and trying to really help them hear and understand what the other person is saying. And I really have not had couples get stuck permanently. Probably the most difficult couple I've had around these kinds of issues was actually a couple where the male partner was, I'm trying to remember what drugs he was using, but he was a drug user, not an alcohol user. And what happened, and the hardest part of the treatment was the crazy thing, was whenever we talk about things like high-risk situations or triggers, the female partner just said, you're giving him excuses. And she really rejected the, almost the whole behavioral model. And he liked it. And we never really resolved it. I hate to say that, but we we're never incredibly successful at helping her or the two of them come to some middle ground in terms of how they thought about, even thought about his drug use. A couple of the other things when couples are at impasse that I have found helpful is this notion of a behavioral experiment. Okay, how, you know, you will need to learn these communication skills, these fundamental aspects of behavioral couples therapies. We're talking about this hour. So one of the ways you can do that is take alcohol temporarily out of the equation to see if you can communicate better, if you can connect more. And asking somebody to give something up for two weeks is much different than going on a permanent abstinence. And uh, you can learn diagnostically, I think, as a clinician a lot. Another thing that you commented on referencing back to the recovery contract, kind of built in, if what we're doing isn't working, the couples therapy and measuring how we're not working, then we have plan B ready to go, which is a more intensive option. And sometimes I've found that that will appeal to the partner that that is worried that their partner's alcohol use will not improve so that you have plan B ready to go if the modified drinking plan or the couple's therapy only does not work. I'm curious to your thoughts on that. And then your thoughts on, we'll hear a lot of too about, because therapists don't, something unless you're working with this population, know about alcohol recovery medication, which sometimes is built into the plan too. So I'm curious your thoughts on that in this type of work. This notion of sobriety sampling, which is the term that we use in the alcohol field more. And it's a really interesting question to say, let's just see what it's like for a couple of weeks. And a lot of people will go with that. Sometimes they'll say just a week. I actually like to see if I can get people to agree to try, like to try abstinence during treatment and saying, Towards the end of treatment, we can reevaluate what you want to do longer term. But it's an old expression in AA that if you say you're going to stay 
be abstinent or sober for the rest of your life, the only way you can achieve the goal is to die. And this way, AA talks a lot about one day at a time. So saying to people, trying to make a commitment for a short period of time makes a lot of sense because then you can see, you can, it, first of all, it's an achievable goal and you can see what you think. Two weeks is okay if somebody's been drinking heavily and closer to on a daily basis, then they're probably still going to feel fairly lousy after two weeks. I like to try for a month instead because then you've gone through the initial abstinence syndrome if you're going to have it and a little bit of the protracted abstinence syndrome. So the person starts, usually around three weeks out, they start feeling better. They'll start seeing like depression is lifting a bit, anxiety is lifting a bit. They may be sleeping a bit better. I guess it's, I like to try to go for one that's a little bit longer. Then the third thing you asked about was medications. And it's a really good area to talk about because there are three medications that are approved for the treatment of alcohol use disorder. The oldest one is disulfiram, also popularly known as antabuse. And that medication works by making the person sick if they consume alcohol. And it's it works really well in the context of behavioral contracting. The challenges with it are that you, people just stop taking it and then they go back to drinking. It only can be used with an abstinence goal. And some people have excessive fatigue when they take it. And they also have to be very vigilant about using anything that has alcohol in it, even things like aftershave or perfumes. The second medication is naltrexone, and there's a daily version of it. There's also an injectable version of it called, the trade name is Vivitrol. And naltrexone basically blocks reward centers to some degree. And there's some good evidence that it's helpful for people who are helping people decrease their drinking as opposed to stopping. It is particularly helpful for people who have high cravings and also for people who have a history of, family history of alcohol use disorder. And then the third is a camprosate, which seems to work best with an abstinence goal. And I'll be honest, I don't fully understand the mechanisms of action by which it works, but it can be, in, it can be started actually with, while people are still drinking and continue on with it. The, any of these medications are very well suited to behavioral contracting. Then the daily contract really is around the use of a medication. And they're really good adjuncts. We have, I've had a lot of clients over the years, individual and couples, that are just the, the person, the identified patient is struggling. They're working, trying. They're, they're, really, they're, they're following through and trying to implement strategies. And clearly, their motivation is high. It's not a question about motivation. But they're just having trouble. And medication is a good support and adjunct to that. There's been old thinking that says you shouldn't ever take medication to help you with dealing with your with drinking or with drug problems. But I can't say a revolution, but it's been an evolution in the substance abuse treatment field in general. Clearly, we have good medications for opioid use disorder, both buprenorphine and let me we'll stick with buprenorphine because that's probably the easiest one to use. Methadone is a very complicated medication. When people are hesitant, they say, oh, I wouldn't want to put a drug in my body. And it's very hard not to chuckle at that point to say, well, you're putting alcohol in your body or you're, you're using benzodiazepines. But if you had a cardiac condition, you would take a medication for that. Or if you have asthma, you might be using medication for that. And I'm not much of a medical model person, but we do know that alcohol and drugs are changing people's bodies and brains 
substantially. And sometimes they need medication to help restabilize or just support them in making change. I'm not like a medication first person, but I don't hesitate about thinking about medication when people are struggling and just not getting to where they want to be. Also an indicator, if you learn your member of your couple that you're working with is using one of these medications, probably a indicator of the severity of their issue with alcohol, correct? Typically, so particularly with naltrexone, if people are having cravings, I've seen people who don't have really severe alcohol use disorder, but just seem to have a lot of cravings. And I don't, you know, maybe that they're particularly sensitized to alcohol or their drinking pattern has been such that they drink in a whole range of environments and situations. So not necessarily severely, but the cues are just everywhere for them. But typically medications are used when people have a somewhat more severe disorder. Barbara, if people would like to follow up the conversation, reach out to you more, you mentioned a resource earlier that would be, well, we will find that it was made about 15 years ago. Other good resources and ways to contact you should they want to after listening to our talk today. Okay, so there are a few resources. We do have books that we publish as part of the Oxford University Press Treatments at Work series. It's a therapist guide and a patient workbook. Those were published in 2009, along with my colleague Elizabeth Epstein. The latest version of the Couples Therapy Handbook that used to be Al German's and is now Doug Snyder and Jay LeBeau's book. We have a chapter in there. That's a good intro because it gives you an overview and it's got a case example and that kind of thing. Years ago, I did it as couples therapy session that's, I think it's psychotherapy. Oh gosh. Psychotherapy.net. Yes. Yes. Thank you. And it's funny. I, all the time people tell me that they still, they use that a lot. And I actually love that. It's a recording of a couple I'd never met them before. They said my challenge in 45 minutes was to illustrate the alcohol behavioral couple therapy. They were a lovely couple. And it was, it's a really good way to see the treatment. And there's a discussion with the moderators as well. And people can reach me through my UNM email. It's bmccrady at unm.edu. Just say UNM, University of New Mexico. Eli, back with you, bringing to a close another informative installment of the AAMFT podcast. Barbara McCready, thank you so much for lending your wisdom, both from a research perspective and a clinical application, which is what our listeners to the podcast like to hear. So hopefully you found some news you can use in that conversation. Barbara mentioned a great resource that if you're interested in finding out more about, you can go to aamft.org, the store tab, and just type in alcohol or alcohol problems, and you will see alcohol problems in intimate relationship. Barbara mentioned this. This is chock full of really good information building on what she talked about this past hour. It's a primer on assessing and treating alcohol problems in couple and family therapy settings, and it's a result of a collaboration between AAMFT and the National Institute for Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. The book contains really a lot of useful information on the significance and prevalence of alcohol problems, state-of-the-art screening and assessment materials, brief intervention strategies, 
to engage clients who have problematic relationships with alcohol and empirically validated treatment guidelines. If you're a member of AMFT, you can get it for the nice price of $9.95. And if you're a non-member, still very affordable, worth picking up $12.95. Again, aamft.org. Also, you can go to aamft.org to check out everything that is going on in the AMFT, including both online trainings, face-to-face conferences, including Institute for Advanced Systemic Family Therapy in London, going down June 21st through the 23rd in the UK. A great lineup. And if you are looking to get away this summer to get some CEUs and expand your systemic knowledge base, AMFT is the place for you. Please listen to us wherever you find your favorite podcast. I like Apple Podcast, Spotify. You can also find us on Google Play. Please, we'd love a star rating and a review that helps us rise through the ranks of the Mental Health Podcast. Very important to me also is our listener feedback. In fact, it came from a listener. Can we do a show around working with couples where one or both partners have alcohol problems? So both topics and potential guests, we'd love to hear from you. You can get a hold of me, Eli at NorthStarCounselingCenter.com. You can also go to EliCaram.com. That's E-L-I-K-A-R-A-M. There you'll find everything's going on with me, including two new books that have been out for the past few months, Bringing the Common Factors to Life and Couple and Family Therapy. And I also have a exam review slash text to get you ready for the licensure exam. Until next time, my friends, stay safe, stay systemic.